I'm Mark Beatty, Editor-in-Chief of Archives of Disease and Childhood. I'm going to highlight to you some of the content from the October edition of the journal. The first article I'd like to cover relates to guidance on clinical research involving infants, children and young people. It's an excellent update. It's relevant to clinicians, to researchers and to research ethics committees. There's no disagreement that research in children is important. It should be supported and encouraged. The need to strengthen child health research is highlighted in a recent Royal College report and with the National Institute of Health Research call for research into the management of children with long-term conditions. There are issues. The research environment is complex and regulated with processes and procedures in place to support research participants, researchers and organisations. These processes, however, can be quite difficult to work through. There are specific issues related to children and this paper provides practical guidance on the ethical issues in relation to research involving children. It includes discussion of children's rights, research risk and the complex issues of consent, assent and dissent. There are sections on research involving pregnant women, research in emergency situations and research with vulnerable children. There are useful summary discussions on sedation for practical procedures, dealing with unexpected findings, commercial sponsorship and payment for participation in research. It's very clear from the document that the ethical principles underpinning the participation of children in clinical research have evolved considerably over the last few decades. The importance of research competency is highlighted with the needs for researchers to receive training in good clinical practice. As part of such training, this article should be essential reading for researchers who plan to be or are involved in research in children. The second article I'd like to highlight relates to bariatric surgery for childhood obesity. Most obese children will become obese adults. The most obese children, that is those with a BMI greater than 3.5 standard deviation score above the mean, are at very significant risk of obesity-related health problems, including psychosocial problems during childhood, adolescence and adult life. Bariatric surgery, effectively obesity surgery, is a potential treatment option. There is specific NICE guidance regarding eligibility, although availability is patchy. In this issue, Sajjev and colleagues report their experience of six patients, that's four male, ages 14 to 16 years, who underwent surgery. Pre-operative BMI SDS ranged from plus 3.5 to plus 5.2. All had significant comorbidity and had failed lifestyle management and medical treatment. Four had a gastric bypass, one had laparoscopic gastric banding and one a laparoscopic sleeve gastrectomy. There were no major post-operative complications Mean percentage weight loss, 
as a percentage of total body weight was 22% at 6 months and 27% at 12 months, with a fall in the mean BMI from 4.4 to 3.8 and 3.1 at 24 months. There were significant sustained reductions in comorbidities. This is a very important data set. Clearly surgery shouldn't be undertaken lightly and without full child and family engagement and multidisciplinary support. It is, however, clearly an important potential option in selected cases. The wider issues are discussed in an accompanying editorial by Mark Mikalski from America. He puts the paper into an international context. There have been increasing numbers of obese young children operated on for obesity in the USA. He titles his editorial, Adolescent Bariatric Surgery in the United Kingdom, A Call for Continued Study and Open Dialogue. The third article I'd like to cover relates to rice protein-based formula for cow's milk allergy. Extensively hydrolyzed cow's milk protein formula are recommended as first-line treatment for cow's milk protein allergy, with amino acid-based formula for infants who are allergic to the peptides present in the hydrolysate. Soya is a potential alternative, although 10-15% to of infants allergic to cow's milk protein do not tolerate soya. And in any case, soya formula are not recommended in infants less than six months. In this issue, Van der Plas and colleagues report their experience with extensively hydrolyzed rice protein-based formula in infants with cow's milk protein allergy. They report 39 infants, mean age 3.4 months, all had cow's milk protein allergy confirmed by challenge in most, that is apart from two who had a history of anaphylaxis. Feed tolerance was good, that's 37 out of 39, with a significant improvement in symptom scores in all infants. The formula use was associated with normal growth. The rice protein-based formula was nutritionally complete and fulfilled internationally accepted criteria for a therapeutic hypoallergenic formula, i.e. tolerated in 90% of children with proven cow's milk protein allergy. This is a significant development with rice protein-based formula being a potential alternative to extensively hydrolyzed cow's milk-based feeds in children with cow's milk protein allergy. The fourth paper I would like to highlight relates to recent advances in paediatric dermatology. It's a first-class review which provides up-to-date management guidance for common skin conditions, that's acne, atopic eczema, infantile hemangioma and psoriasis. The guidance is supported by helpful commentaries and algorithms. 
Propranolol for the management of infantile hemangioma is discussed in detail. The authors also review important developments including recognition of Kaposiform hemangioendothelioma as a differential diagnosis of infantile hemangioma, skin conditions in rheumatology overlap disorders, comorbidities of psoriasis, the assessment of pigmented lesions, management of onychomycosis and recognition of Coxsackie A6, hand, foot and mouth disease. This article is essential reading. It's focused and informative. The authors call for continued research into the recognition and treatment of the many dermatology disorders in children and into the complexities of adapting management plans to the paediatric population. I'd like to finish by mentioning a second excellent review published in this edition. This relates to fever in the returning traveller. In this review article, Halber and colleagues discuss the assessment and management of fever in the returning traveller. It's essential to take a detailed travel and medical history. It's essential to do a thorough clinical examination and it's essential to do appropriate first-line investigations. The majority of children will have a common, self-limiting or easily treatable infection. Although other causes, including imported infections, which may be life-threatening or highly contagious, need to be considered. The review provides guidance on the initial assessment and management of such children with a focus on some of the more important imported infections, including malaria, dengue, typhoid, traveller's diarrhoea, respiratory infections, tuberculosis, schistosomiasis and rickettsial diseases. I'm Mark Beattie, Editor-in-Chief of Archives of Disease and Childhood. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. I refer you to the journal website for the full papers. Thanks for listening.